This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. When you think about uh, worship, what do you think when you hear the word worship? Contemplate that in your mind. Uh, Many of us immediately think about this gathering uh, and this type of gathering where people come together to sing and praise and preach and play uh, is different in its forms all over the world. Uh, Some have a a very liturgical form with lots of readings and up and down. Others are very free form in terms of how they express themselves. But every worship gathering has, in a sense, a liturgy, an operating uh, path uh, as we as we sing together as the body of Christ in the place where God's people and his spirit dwell. And we learn a little bit about worship, though, in a larger sense from the last verses that Paul shared at the end of chapter 11. You may remember when Paul is dealing with this really challenging issue of how is, going, how is Paul or how is God going to redeem all of Israel? How is he going to save all of Israel? This really thorny, complex theological question that many people really don't understand or dispute. At the end of that conversation, what did he do when he uh, was reflecting on this? If you look back with me to the end of chapter 11, what does he do? Is he discouraged? Is he frustrated? Is he confused? No, he does this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When Paul faces a challenging theological question, he rejoices in praise. He begins to worship God. He exalts God. What is worship? What is worship? Paul has shared with us that God is going to do something significant and powerful with his people, and it leads him to worship. Uh, the English word for, for worship is worth-ship. That's where we get our word, and it means to assign value to something. And when we gather here together and sing praises, we're assigning value to God. We're saying God in this gathering is more valuable to me than an extra hour or two of sleep on Sunday morning. It's more valuable to me than just hanging out at home. I'm giving something up to come and praise him with his people and to acknowledge him. And when I say, God, you're great, I'm acknowledging that, man, I'm not totally great. That you are worthy. Well, I'm not totally worthy. We're acknowledging that God is worth something more and that he is significant. And so, Paul, why is he saying this? Because of the mercy of God. Remember, we've talked about what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And we've known Paul has pounded this into us, especially in Romans chapter 3. What do we deserve because of our sinful nature and our brokenness? We deserve, we deserve death. But God gives us life. He gives us mercy. And because of that, we're called to rejoice and to love him and cherish him and to gather in this way to proclaim his glory and to respond in obedience. But worship is more than simply gathering in this way. It's all of life. Through every decision that we make, every action that we take, every, every time we spend money, every time we communicate, we're honoring and cherishing the God who is. And that itself is an act of 
worship. And so here Paul says some instructions for us. He gives us some guidance on how to worship. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, in light of what I've just said in Romans chapter 11, I appeal to you in light of this worship because of the mercy of God, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is giving us three specific actions that we can take that constitute spiritual worship, that demonstrate to us not only should we gather in this way, but that we should live our whole lives as an act of worship. So there are three things that I want to lift up to you out of this passage that I think Paul is saying to us about what is spiritual worship. First of all, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So what does this mean? Well, it can mean a lot of different things. But how do we think about our bodies these days? Uh, sometimes we can end up uh, being uh, extreme with our bodies. On the, on the one hand, uh, some people are so concerned with how they appear, uh, with how they look, with the shape that they're in and what they eat and whether we're not have, we have uh, rock-hard abs or whatever, or ab. We're so concerned with that that we can become unhealthy in the approach to life where we're consumed with fitness. We're consumed with eating just the right things all the time. And now listen, I think it's good to eat healthy. I'm thinking about what I eat and getting exercise. I go to the park at 5.30 in the morning and, and jump around on the concrete for crying out loud to get fit. It's good to take care of yourself, but we can sometimes obsess about it, can't we? We can sometimes make too much of it. We think our bodies are ultimate, and so we're thinking about it all the time. On the other hand, we can go to the other extreme and we never think about it. We're never concerned about what we consume. We're never concerned about it. We just eat and we become unhealthy. That's the other extreme and that's not a good thing either. We're just saying our bodies don't even matter. One says the body doesn't matter. The other one says the body is ultimate. But what God is saying is present your body as a living sacrifice because your body can be used for worship. We also know that our bodies can be used for things that are unhealthy, physically, even spiritually. But we see this extremism in our culture. But you know what, what does the, the catechism say? I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ. The catechism teaches us that, that our souls are the Lord's, but also our physical bodies. God is the one who defines and orchestrates and determines the parameters in which our bodies exist. And so he has ownership of them. Why? Because they've been bought with a price. Because Jesus gave up his own body. And so for those of us who want to live in accordance with God's will, we want to live in flourishing with God's will, then we want to use our bodies in the way that God prescribes in his word. And we see this in other areas. We see the confusion in our culture about sex. What the culture says is that I am my sexual identity. And so that leads me then into all kinds of sexual activity that is not healthy. It's outside the bounds of what God has prescribed in his word that lead to healthy sexual relationships and flourishing. 
And so people now say, well, because I have these tendencies or these desires, then that's who I am. And the best way for me to be who I am is to live fully into those desires. But that's not what God says. God says, I've given you life. I paid for your body. And so then the best way for you to flourish is to live with your body in the way I have prescribed, the way I have offered to you to live. And this is a struggle in our culture. This is a great challenge for people, regardless of their temptations, regardless of their, uh, their leanings, to live in a way that is sexually pure before the Lord. Whether you're married, whether you're single, or whatever the case might be, it's a challenge in our culture. We see this in a huge way. But God has given us guidance in his word to say, this is what I've designed for you, that, that uh, sexual expression is only permitted in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. He's given us this bracket. That doesn't mean that we can't have authentic relationships and be in community and, and live vibrant lives if we're not married. But it means that we're not defined by our sexuality. We're defined rather by God and our sexuality is a way to express ourselves in the covenant of marriage. God gives us this guidance. And so we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord, then we can experience flourishing. And the challenge, though, is when uh, sex gets outside of marriage, the consequences don't usually appear right away. I've shared this with you before. You know, if you want to break the law of gravity, you can't. The law of gravity breaks you. And usually it's pretty fast. If you jump off a building, pretty much you're going to experience the law of gravity very quickly. But if you break God's design and law for sexual practice, the consequences don't come until much, much later sometimes. Certainly you could have an unwanted pregnancy immediately, but eventually those consequences catch up. And they express themselves in broken relationships and harmed uh, marriages. And this is not something that I want, I just want to encourage you, this is not something that only certain people struggle with. This is something that, that many people struggle with, regardless of their place in culture, whether they're married or single or widowed or divorced. This is something that all people struggle with. And it's a good thing to struggle with it. Because when you say you're struggling with it, you're saying, yes, Lord, I know what your design is. I know what you want. And I want to live under your authority but I recognize that I have these temptations that aren't consistent with what your word is and I'm struggling here. So God, give me the strength to obey you and to understand down in my heart, why is it that I want to express these desires in unhealthy ways? To examine that, to confess that, and then to rejoice in my salvation so that I can walk in obedience. And when I make mistakes, when I get outside the boundaries, I can say, Lord, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for pointing me to what healthy relationships actually look like because I'm forgiven even if I've messed up. So I just want to encourage you right now, brothers and sisters, continue to engage in that struggle. And when you fail, embrace the gospel. Be reminded that you're forgiven, that you're set free, that God wants to heal you and redeem you, but allow that redemption and healing to move you toward holy living, towards faithfulness in how you use your body, and how you think about sex and what you look at, what you consider with your mind and heart. Rejoice in your salvation and walk in obedience. Present your bodies as an act of worship. The second thing is, Paul tells us, be transformed, not conformed. 
What does the verse say specifically? Do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two fish are swimming along. Two young fish. And an older fish swims along and sees them. And as he swims by, he says, how's the water? And one younger fish says to the other young fish, what's water? I've never gotten less of an expression on anything I've ever said (laughs) in my entire life. Think about it. The young fish don't realize that they're in water. And sometimes for us, we don't realize what we're swimming in. We don't understand the context that we're in. We live in the world, but we're called as followers of Jesus to not be of the world. And sometimes we've been swimming in the world for such a long time that we don't even realize that we're swimming in water. We exist in a sea of culture that is around us all the time. And we don't even realize that we're embedded in this world because we don't usually stop to even think about it. We just assume that things are the way they are for a reason and we never even question why. It's as though we're one of these fish, entirely dependent upon the water for survival but not even aware that it's there. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Peter also addresses this in Scripture, and so does John. Listen to these from different letters of theirs. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. John writes, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean when he says The world, if Paul is saying this, and if Peter is saying this, and John is saying this, it's probably a big idea. We shouldn't love the world. Are you being conformed? Are you being transformed? Paul is challenging us to to resist being conformed to the world, to be aware what we're swimming in. John later tells us what the world means. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see, the world is passing away with its desires. He goes on, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The dude abides. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So here's the thing. First of all, conformity to the world is understanding, there's not even understanding that there is a world, that there is a culture, that you're swimming in it and you don't even realizing it. If you're not even realizing that you're in a culture, then that's your first problem, is knowing what you don't know. Realizing that you're in a culture. And here's the thing, if you don't think you're just a product of your culture, tell me how you learned English. Do you remember how you learned to speak? What were the things that you went through and practiced and did with your parents to learn how to speak English? I guarantee you most of you don't really remember unless English 
is your second language, right? Sandra has worked very hard to develop her English skills, and they're excellent. But for those of us who are native English speakers, we don't remember what we did because we were just living in a culture where English was spoken. Now, you remember uh, learning how to write English. You had spelling tests. You had vocabulary workshop. You had grammar. You maybe had a diagram a sentence. Ugh. You learned that. That was a conscious learning. But learning how to speak was something that just came naturally because in the, in the context where you were, it was just English being spoken. Well, culture can be the same way. We're not even aware that we're speaking the language of the culture and that we've adopted the culture because we're just in it. So, for example, one of the ways that we understand time in America is unknown to us. It's just different, uh, especially in white America. We see time as a limited resource that must be preserved and cared for. That's why we start this worship service at 1028 or 1029, so we can do the prelude in two minutes and start the service at 1030. And boy, at 1130, there's a couple of you that are doing this. What's going on? It's not a clock watching church. I, the people at the church I served in St. Pete, they, they would fall asleep, at, and we knew that's the time to end the sermon. But we have a view of time that is it's limited. We've got to take care of it. But I'm sure, as uh, uh, Robert can attest in Honduras, the view of time is different. We, had a, we, we put a new water system in. There was going to be a big party. We said, the party's at 2 o'clock. I think at 4.30, the first people showed up. And we're like, where's the party? We're having, you know. Time is different because in those cultures, in other cultures, if you want more time, we'll just wait till tomorrow because there's all the time we need then. What's the rush? Now, is it wrong? It's wrong if you're an American and you come to Honduras and you enforce your view of time on them. But there's not a right way to view time. It's just a different way to view time. That's a subjective thing in a way. It's not right or wrong. But if you don't realize you're living in a culture that has a different view of time than you, then you're going to have conflict. Now, you know, if you've ever done a Myers-Briggs study, uh, there are people who are J's and there are people who are P's. And the J's say, let's be on time. We're going to start the meeting. We're going to do it right now. And the P's are, well, I may have some more time to get some more things done. So if I, on time to me is five minutes late to every meeting. And God bless, we have one person who's a J on our staff. And we've tried to help him as much as possible be on time to meetings. And he's patient with us about being uptight about the time, right? But you know, this creates conflict. But these are subjective things, time. What about if it's something that actually is harmful? What about racism? Um, the idea that one race is better, one is superior, or one race is inferior to another. So I'm a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan. Uh, we've been suffering for the last 20 years. I lived in Miami when I was little, and my first professional football game uh, was at, at a Miami Dolphins game, I think it was in 1976. And so I've always been a Dolphins fan. I don't even know who the players are. I haven't been to a game since 96, but I'm just a Dolphins fan. Well, you may have heard about this uh, recently. The owner of the team fired the coach, who was black, a couple of weeks ago. And this coach, uh, who had had two winning seasons in a row, the first two winning seasons in a row in 20 years uh, was fired, and he filed a lawsuit against the Dolphins and the NFL uh, claiming there's racial discrimination. 
His claim is that 70% approximately of the players in the NFL are African American, and there's only two or three African American coaches. There are very few executives, and he claims that he was overlooked for another position with a different team because he was black. Now, I'm not going to get into the case, but it does create for us a conversation about race whether or not African-Americans have the same opportunities to move forward in the NFL or in other professions in our culture. It invites us to consider, what's the water that we're swimming in? Have we just assumed a culture? Have we assumed that because we have opportunities, that everybody has offer opportunities? Have you ever heard about whitening your resume? You ever heard about that? Most of you haven't. You know why? Because you're white. But it's a real thing that recruiters tell people of color to do to their resume. Whiten it up because Joe gets a better response than Jose. Statistically speaking, if you have an, I don't want to say ethnic sounding name because to African-Americans and Latinos, we sound ethnic because we're white. But if you have a Latino-sounding name or a black-sounding name, your resume gets picked up less. That's statistically true. So that's a part of our culture that we live in. It's part of the world that we swim in. And we may not even be aware of it because it's never impacted us. And so Paul is saying, don't be conformed to the world. Don't live in the world in the way that the world operates, thinking that you know everything about how the world operates. Instead, do what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. The word is metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. He's saying, have a metamorphosis. Does it mean if we're not aware of whitening the resume that we're racists? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we as believers in Jesus need to be aware of what our brothers and sisters or what people in our culture experience that's not fair. And to understand that and to seek to do justice on behalf of people for that reason. Because you see, it's possible if we're just unaware that we might actually even be contributing to it and don't even know. We don't want to be conformed to the world when it comes to issues of race or issues of sexual ethics or issues of justice for the oppressed or issues on how I spend my money or God's money. It could be anything. We don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed. And he says it's actually an act of worship when we're being transformed, when we experience these things and we see what God is doing through his word. Metamorphosis. You see, part of worshiping God rightly is to experience this transformation. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens as we encounter God's word, as we read the scriptures and we see what they say. And we read scripture with people who are different from us. Because you see, when an African-American person reads the story of slavery, they experience it differently than we do. They just do. When we experience, uh, when we talk with people who are our minority brothers and sisters, or we go to another country and we see what people face, when we learn from people who have different views than we do, and we grow in our understanding because we can see God from their point of view. And that's a great thing. That brings about transformation 
that brings about renewal, that brings about reconciliation in our communities. Instead of pointing the finger saying, you don't agree with me, we're saying, let's look at God together and let me see him from the way that you see him. But that's a humbling thing to do because we have to get outside our comfort zone and live in contested spaces where we're experiencing disagreement and tension. But when we have Jesus at the center, then we can do that because we know that Jesus is on the throne. But we've got to be willing to do that. So we want to be transformed. So how does that happen? The renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? I think one of the main ways that we renew our minds is through connection and community with the word. Studying the scriptures in community with other people. Having them bring their insights to you to understand. Spending time with God, meditating upon his word. And then also the word capital W, Jesus. Engaging with Jesus in the places where he goes to be transformed, to see the world in a different way. So that you're not conformed, but rather you're transformed. So here's the thing. Get out your little mental calculator, and I want to ask you to ask yourself a question. How much are you being renewed by God's word, and how much are you being conformed to the world in terms of your weekly experience? I would say you're being conformed to the world if you're not listening to, reading, thinking about what you're getting from culture from a biblical standpoint. How many hours do you spend taking in news from whatever network you watch? How many podcasts do you listen to? How much music do you listen to? What do you read? What are you watching on TV or on YouTube videos? Is the amount of input you're getting more or less than the amount of input you're getting from people who are seeking to encourage you to know and meditate upon Jesus' word? Is there an imbalance? And if this is high and this is low, well, then you know what this week? Do this. Just do a little bit of this and begin thinking. Because the more you're thinking about focusing on the word, the more you're able to interpret what you're getting from a transformational perspective. This is not to say ignore the news, ignore the culture. It's to say understand the culture in light of what the Bible says so that we can seek to renew it by the power of the gospel. We're not hiding from the culture. We're not avoiding the culture. We're wanting to enter in and bring the good news of the gospel in so that it can be transformed by Jesus Christ. That's our role. And that's worship because it glorifies and honors God. And what a privilege it is for us to be the bearers of that gospel news in the culture. We've been given this role. We've been commissioned. God has laid his hands on us to say, go and bring the good news to the world. That's what being transformed means. Do a little bit of this. And if it's this way, awesome, keep it going. The last thing is that we are tested to discern. Let's look at that last verse been about an hour since I read it the first time. By testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The last act of spiritual worship is being tested to discern. You know, many people want to know, what's the will of God? What does God want for my life? What, what should I be doing? What does God want from me and for me? Well, here it says, in order to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, he will allow testing. He will allow testing in your life in order that you are able to understand his will. This is not the way we think it's going to happen. We think God's going to give us the answers, not give us a test. 
But what does a test do? Think about when you've had a test. I know some uh, people in here had a test this week, right? But we have all different kinds of tests. What is a test? There's an examination that you take on a piece of paper to assess your knowledge of a particular subject. That's a kind of test. But if you're getting ready to climb up on a bunk bed and there's a ladder, what do you do before you climb up on the bunk bed? You push that thing down and step on it and make sure, will this little tiny ladder hold me to get up on make that bed on the bunk bed? If my ankle was hurt, I'm not just going to sprint down the street on the first day back. I'm going to test it. I'm going to put a little weight on it. I'm going to make sure it feels good. It's pressure. It's effort. It's pushing against something to determine its strength and viability. And you know what, brothers and sisters? God's going to test you. Because what does he want to do? He wants to determine and evaluate where you are in your faith journey. He wants to evaluate that. And here's the good news. You already got an A on the test. You passed the test. How do we know that? Because Jesus got the A. And it's not cheating for Jesus to give you his score. I don't know how that works, but it's not. He gives you an A. So you passed. So when you experience the test, you can not feel the pressure of, am I going to pass? Is this going to be on the test? What's it going to mean? I already passed. I can experience this test and I can say, okay, this is what I've learned about where I am in my faith. Going back to presenting my bodies, if I feel sexually tempted, I can realize, am I walking with God in such a way that that is not a temptation to me anymore? Because I know that Jesus loves me and rejoices in me and I don't need to do that. When I feel angry about something, I can say, Lord, help me by grace to respond in love, even when I feel angry. And when I blow up and I embarrass myself and my family, I can say, Lord, thank you for giving me an A. Let me examine my heart. Why am I getting so upset about this? Why am I so impatient with the people that are closest to me? Why do I speak this way? Or why did I not stand up for that person who needed to be stood up for? What's going on? Am I afraid of what other people think? Lord, test me and reveal that to me. Because you love me so much, you gave me an A. I certainly want to grow as your disciple. That's what testing means. That's what, how we discover what his will is. And, and if we don't go through the test, then we'll never really get it a sense of where we are. So if you're experiencing a test right now, don't think of that as God punishing you or God, you know, I'm not happy with Matt, so I'm going to give him a test. No, he wants me to know and understand so that I can be more like him, number one, but that I want to be with him, number two, because he knows I got an F and he gave me an A. And so I'll say, Lord, thanks. I want to be with you. Transform me. You know, the word we talked about is uh, metamorphosis earlier. You think about, okay, we think about a metamorphosis. It happens when a, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And so what does it do? It, what's the process in between? It creates a, a chrysalis. And so it's a, it, 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 then it pulls, it comes out as it hatches. And you know, what, what goes on in that process is there's just a little tiny opening. A little tiny opening. And what has to happen is the butterfly essentially squeezes through that little tiny hole. If you cut open that hole to make it easier on the caterpillar to become the butterfly, guess what happens? It dies. Because through that little tiny hole, all of the fluid remains in the chrysalis and what comes out are the beautiful wings. It's the test, it's the difficulty, it's the struggle that allows the thing to become what it's supposed to be. 
So when you experience a test, don't say, oh man, say thank you, Lord, for giving me this opportunity to assess where I am so that I can be more like you. This is an act of worship. And you know what? God is exceedingly pleased with you. Whether you pass, fail, incomplete, F, it doesn't matter. And yet it does. God wants us to worship him. The illustration I shared uh, about the fish was from a graduation speech by David Foster Wallace, uh, an amazing author who tragically committed suicide. Uh, but he said this in a, in a graduation, and later on in that graduation um, speech, he said, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God, I don't know where David Foster was on his journey with Jesus, if he had one. He said, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan, mother goddess of the four noble truths or some infringible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He goes on, if you worship money and the things uh, they, they will buy, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they fi finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? The reality for those of us in Christ, our mission and goal and purpose is to worship the God who is. But we all recognize in this fallen state, because of indwelling sin, there's a tendency for us to worship the things of this world. But God enters down into our lives because he loves us. He wants to give us an opportunity to demonstrate who he is and where we are so that we might be more like him as a result of being with him. So here's my question for you. In light of this time, this morning, that you've had to be with God, for him to shine down his light of mercy and joy and love in the person of Jesus, you who, like me, are looking to other things, he's come to you to reveal himself to you. In light of that, what should you do differently this week? What is the way that you can apply one thing that you've learned this morning? As always, I say, write it down. Write it down on a piece of paper. Think about it. What's the one thing that I can do to live unto Christ? And do it. Obey him. It will bless you, and it will bless him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.